Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. This is staff writer Jason Kebler, and today we are going to be talking about free money. Yes, what if I told you that every month someone would give you and everyone in your community between, let's say, $1,000 and $2,000? Would you say that I'm crazy? Maybe? Well, I'm not. The idea of a universal basic income is a formerly fringy idea that's been gaining steam in the last few years. It works something like this. Take a pool of tax money and give some of it to everyone. It's kind of it. Um, The idea here is that everyone should be able to pay rent and eat And by providing people with their basic needs, you should have an inherently healthier and better off nation. That's how the theory goes, at least. But why do we need a basic income now? Well, maybe you've noticed, but automation is slowly but surely replacing a lot of jobs that humans used to do with ones that robots, drones, software, and artificial intelligence can or will soon be able to do. We're looking at a future where it's possible that there simply won't be enough jobs for everyone. Maybe that's a good thing, though. Do we really need people to be truck drivers when robots can do it for us? But we still got to figure out what we're going to do with the people who are put out of work. So that's where basic income comes in. Automation and offshoring have been going on for a long time, though. So why should we do this podcast now? Well, this last weekend, that's June 5th, 2016, if you're listening in the far distant future, Switzerland voted on whether the country should, quote, guarantee the introduction of an unconditional basic income, end quote. The measure failed, so maybe basic income is an idea that's ahead of its time. Or maybe it's not. There are other basic income projects and experiments happening all over the world right now. The one that you should be keeping an eye on was announced last week, and it's going to happen in Oakland later this summer. The startup incubator Y Combinator is going to give 100 people in Oakland between $1,000 and $2,000 per month, and they're just going to study what happens. Soon after Y Combinator announced that it was going forward with the project, I called up Matt Krisiloff who's the head of the basic income project at Y Combinator, and Elizabeth Rhodes, the research lead of the project, to talk about how it'll all work. So you guys are doing a pilot program of basic income in Oakland, which is very exciting. Um, I heard when you guys first announced it, but it looks like you're moving forward with it. So um, I guess, first of all, what uh, what's the general plan here? Initially, we're going to be starting with a pilot. that don't have the exact timeline yet, but thinking six months to a year. And then that's going to focus very much on the mechanical aspects of figuring out how to do best study in that environment. Things like data collection, choosing a random sample, um, things along those lines. And then if it goes well, uh, we'll follow on with a full study that will run, we're thinking, five years at this point. So it is possible we could extend it or have various groups in it. So 
why announce now if you're not sure how it will work? Are you just kind of hoping to get the word out for now? Yeah, uh, we think it's really important to be talking to different community partners, government officials, uh, people in the Oakland community, just normal people as well to get a sense of what they think about this. And I think getting it out there, uh, letting people know that we've hired Beth as our research director uh, is a good way to be doing that. It'll just get more people involved in wanting to help us or have constructive criticism and things like that. Do you have any idea what this pilot is going to look like in terms of number of people and um, how much money you want to give them? Sure. Beth, do you want to take that? Sure. Um, for the pilot, we're looking small, uh, less than 100 people. Um, we will be testing, uh, We will for, the, for both studies, we'll have a control group that doesn't receive the basic income. So we want to test out um, how to keep them engaged in the project and um, just, you know, our survey questions and sort of figure all that out. Um, for, we're not entirely um, set on the amount of money we will be giving. It'll be monthly, um, perhaps $1,000 a month, $1,500, somewhere between $1,000 and $2,000 a month. Um, that's something we'll be working on um, the next couple, before we start the pilot. Do you know how you're going to enroll people or what neighborhoods you're going to go to or what sorts of people are you going to try to enroll? We will be doing a random sample. And one of the things, we won't be necessarily testing out the exact way we're going to randomize for the pilot because it's really just to test out some of the mechanics and we'll be working on coming up with a sampling frame and figuring out. But we want to draw from all over the city, a diverse group of people. We'll be stratifying by you know, certain characteristics to make sure that we have different income levels and ethnicities represented as a sample. But figuring out the best way to, to um, come up with that and select that sample is, is one of the things we'll be working on during the pilot. So you're not going to limit it to people who are just unemployed or people who have certain types of jobs, are you? No. I've been writing about automation for a while, and I think basic income is a really uh, interesting idea. But why is it so compelling for Y Combinator? I think it's really the political basis of it that's most intriguing. We think it's going to be really important to figure out ways to expand the social safety net in the future. We think we are on a trajectory where a lot of jobs are degrading over time in terms of job security, um, how much jobs are paying, and things along those lines. If we extrapolate that going forward, it's going to be a problem most likely. And basic income is a really intriguing solution for that potentially because of this political buy-in it has. It has people that are very conservative, libertarian-leaning that are very interested in it, and has people that are very traditionally liberal-leaning and uh, very interested in it as well. And that's just something you don't see almost any other issue when it comes to expanding social welfare. To some degree, earned income tax credit, but it's, it's very, very rare. If there is that type of buy-in in the current political environment we have, we think that's a really powerful point to bring people together and figure out a real tangible solution. We're not sure this is the best solution. We want to study this because it hasn't been studied and we're not going to be able to answer all the questions and come up around basic income and, you know, we'll do the best we can as a first step. You know, the point of the study is to sort of see how it might work to then move forward from there in terms of exploring other options or refining it. Do you think this is something that a government should be studying or a university, for example? Like what, what makes... Why Combinator a good entity to do this research? Directly up front, we're definitely going to be partnering with people at universities, um, top universities you would think of at mentioning it at this point. Uh, they're going to be both helping directly with things like data analysis and gathering, 
as well as advising us on how we're thinking about it. So a lot of aspects are still going to be pretty traditional. But that said, I think we're interested in alternative ways of funding research as well. Like we have very established ways of where how things are done right now, and we don't necessarily know that those are the absolute best ways possible. So we're exploring uh, with with the help of people who you know, are very qualified to be doing so, whether there are aspects about this that we can do more efficiently and perhaps in a more ambitious or risk-taking way that might be easy to do within a traditional university environment. I think, you know, for me, I came from academia and I think it is out-of-the-box idea and, you know, there are a lot of people that are really excited, you know, to be taking that on, to be funding it. You know, it doesn't always happen. Nobody else is, is willing to fund this and study this right now. So I think their willingness to take that risk and to conduct a study is exciting. This is very exciting and I think basic income is a really uh, great idea and I think it's pretty compelling. You mentioned that you think that this will be a problem going forward or rather people being out of work may be a problem going forward. And I'm interested, a lot of the automation and sort of stratification that's happening has been as a result of innovations coming from Silicon Valley, you know, being in the Valley and being as part of like a startup incubator. Do you guys feel this is partially your responsibility to find out if this might work? I mean, I'm not blaming Y Combinator for like automation. And I think that Overall, you know, automation has the potential to make humans, you know, have a lot more free time. But I guess you get what I'm getting at. I wouldn't say it's our responsibility to figure out. And I think there's no way we alone could figure everything out about this. I think one of our main hopes with it is that we're going to be inspiring other people to take up research here in the U.S. along these lines and figure out other questions around this as well. I would say our type of work definitely drives interest in it. I mean, we work with these types of technology companies that are building the types of tools to let people do more with less. So it's something we're very aware of, and it drives the interest. But overall, with YC Research, which is our nonprofit arm, we're really trying to work on the problems we think might be the most important problems in the world, at least in the coming decades. So our other projects are OpenAI, which is working on general artificial intelligence, which is something that could really think like a human could. And then Park, which is working on education technology to help people all over the world from much younger ages have much better access to education, more intuitive ways to communicate with computers along those lines. So it's something we're deeply interested in, not from a guilt perspective, but thinking it's something very important for the world and we want to do what we can. I guess there haven't been that many large-scale experiments, which I guess you are hoping to do along the way, but are there other programs that you looked at when you're looking at, you know, how we should implement this or other sort of like welfare type programs that you've looked at that might serve as a good model? Well, one thing we've looked at a lot at is the negative income tax experiments in the 1970s which were done by the U.S. government and one was done by the Canadian government, testing something very similar to basic income. Those experiments in a lot of ways were pretty promising, but there were a couple of negative results and the results were the experiment was designed in a flawed capacity. So we feel like, well, it did really derail the conversation around that because of the flaws in the experiments and it just became highly politicized. But we think if we follow along those lines and actually design a good experiment, uh, share our results with people, the data sets publicly, and show if it's promising, if it's like a promising thing and it's actually good, and do that publicly, then that could push the conversation forward. We're definitely not certain that this is the best solution, and if the results show that, then we want to be able to very publicly share that with everyone as well, so we can think about other types of solutions that might make more sense. 
How open is this experiment going to be in terms of like, are you going to wait until it's all over to start publishing or do you hope to kind of share information about it as it's going through? We definitely want to share information as it's going through. Um, you know, obviously we're going to protect our participants and, you know, the integrity of the experiment, uh, the study, you know, as much as we can, we want to share um, as we go along. Transparency, openness, data sharing is, is really important. You know, to the extent possible, we're going to be sharing as we go along. One quick note, right after Y Combinator announced this, there were a lot of questions on Twitter about how involved the local city government would be and how much heads up the government had uh, about this project, which is pretty understandable considering that they're basically proposing to experiment on the population of a city um, in their blog post, Y Combinator said that Oakland would be involved. Um, I did ask them about this, and Y Combinator wasn't willing to give me specifics and wasn't willing to go on the record about it. So I reached out to a spokesperson in the Oakland city government who didn't know anything about it and uh, said she'd look into it and then didn't respond to multiple requests for comment after that. Um, a freedom of information request from journalist Susie Cagle in, um, she's San Francisco based and has worked with Motherboard before, uh, basically turned up one email. Uh, it was sent by a legal analyst in the Oakland city government saying, hey, I saw the post about uh, basic income research that you're thinking about doing in Oakland. Um, I'd love to learn more about where in Oakland you're piloting this and what your time frame is. Do you have any more information you can share? And someone at Y Combinator basically said, uh, you know, we can't tell you much. Uh, we'll be posting more to our blog in the near future, which doesn't sound like uh, doesn't sound great. Uh, so I followed up with Matt Krisiloff over at Y Combinator, and he told me that uh, Y Combinator met with Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff and her senior staff a few weeks before announcing um, that's basically the latest we have on it, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this later in the show, but uh, that's about as much as I can share at the moment, and that's all that I know. Y Combinator's move is splashy, and we're going to talk about it more later in this episode. But I also decided to call up Natalie Foster, who's a co-founder of the Universal Income Project, which has been doing create-a-thons and things like that to inspire new thinking about basic income. One of the groups that grew out of that project is called My Basic Income, which is going to give a guy in Florida named Edwin $1,250 a month for a year to see what he does with it. It's a very, very small scale experiment, more of a publicity stunt than anything else, but it's worth talking about anyway. The Universal Income Project is focused on building community and uh, organizing around the idea of giving people money or the universal basic income uh, and building a movement across the United States. The Universal Income Project is a group of folks who've put together things like a create-a-thon that we held a couple of months ago, first in the Bay Area and then a second one in LA, where thinkers and engineers and designers and writers uh, all came together over the course of a weekend and um, worked on different projects that spread the word about the universal basic income. Out of that create-a-thon that happened in the Bay Area, uh, mybasicincome.org was launched. And just this week, um, that group gave away their first sweepstakes winnings to someone sort of signaling a, what a universal basic income would look like and um, sort of tracking what that person does with the money. And they'll be crowdfunding another round and, and giving it away. Uh, and so projects like that that are, you know, 
um, interesting or, or video projects uh, have come out of the creatathons as well. Right. They chose one person in Florida, I believe, and gave him $15,000, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that group rate crowdfunded $15,000 and then had a separate lottery of people who threw their name in a hat to receive that money. There were over 3,000 people who threw their name into that hat. So this week in an art gallery on an evening in San Francisco, they spun the wheel and drew the name out of the hat. And it was Edwin from Florida. Don't know much about Edwin other than he said he would use the money, quote, to save it for a rainy day. It's no fun, but no, that that's cool. I, I mean, I understand the appeal of basic income, but I'm wondering how giving one person uh, you know, 1250 bucks a month for a year is is different from, you know, say had Edwin won the lottery or something like that. Is this more of a um, attention-raising type of uh, stunt, I guess? Yeah. Personally, what I think MyBasicIncome.org is doing is showing the stories of people and how they would use supplements to their income, how they would use a, a basic income. And what's interesting is it's not, you know, this is one example. There's another group in Germany who's been doing this for a while quite successfully and have really interesting stories of people in, across Germany and how they've used their basic income. But one also could look to Alaska, uh, where for several decades, the Alaskan government um, has set up a permanent fund that houses the oil royalties that uh, come in from all the oil companies who, you know, drill in Alaska. And each month, each year, Alaska residents are given between one and $3,000 as basically income from those oil royalties. So I think there's an example of what universal basic income could look like even here on U.S. soil. I'm wondering, how did you initially get into this movement? I've spent the last three and a half years working with people who work in the on-demand or the gig economy. So Uber drivers, Etsy sellers, you know, Airbnb hosts. I'd started an organization called Peers. And, um, you know, I think a lot about if work looks more like Uber, what sort of social policies do we need to put in place to make sure Uber drivers have paid time off or unemployment insurance or workers' comp or, you know, Etsy sellers have parental leave? How could we think about a social safety net that supports people who work outside of traditional employment? And that, I think, is today's question. But the truth is that Uber drivers are probably extinct in five to seven years. Or Elon Musk just yesterday said that he thinks self-driving cars are even two years away from a, certainly a tech standpoint, but even a regulatory standpoint. Um, and when self-driving cars replace Uber drivers, just as one example, what then do we do? What sort of social policy will we need when work looks really different or there is less of it or it takes new forms that are even less secure than the jobs we built, you know, the American middle class on? And that's what brought me to the concept of the universal basic income, you know, this really old idea that's essentially a cash grant to everyone. I was really intrigued by, you know, the fact the founding fathers talked about it to the people sort of right of center like Milton Friedman and people left of center like Dr. Martin Luther King all talked about this idea. And, you know, Nixon had a plan. I mean, there have been moments in history when the universal basic income was in vogue. But the difference was it stayed at sort of the the elite level, the chattering class level, and there wasn't a a popular movement built around the idea. So the Universal Income Project and a set of other organizations and groups are working to change that, to to really 
take this idea to communities across the country and start to grapple with what would it look like if people didn't have to work uh, for a living? What would it look like if you could choose what sort of work you know you had? I mean, one of the things that I find quite interesting of a universal basic income is that it means people have more agency. They can choose what kind of work they want to do. They could walk away from, from an abusive spouse. As Andy Stern, a former labor leader who's coming out with a book this month called Raising the Floor, um, advocates, I've heard him say it's sort of like a universal strike fund. It means anyone anywhere can walk off you know, a job that, that they don't like. And I think the net impact for people who are in jobs that they don't like, that don't pay enough, you know, that don't cover the bills could be really profound. I also think, you know, we're 10 to 15 years away from something like this. It's not coming soon, but these things don't happen overnight. It takes a lot of hard work and it takes support from people all all across the U.S. And so that's why I think starting to have public conversations about the idea is really important. I have heard a lot more people talking about it, um, having covered automation for a few years now. I mean, it's something that comes up from time to time, and it's obvious that we're going to need something like this. It's really interesting that there are supporters on both sides of the aisle. I'm wondering, what do you say to skeptics who say, you know, this might be too expensive, or how would we possibly do this? Like, has that solved yet? Like, what do you say to people to convince them that this is a good idea, besides the fact that all our jobs are going away and we need something to replace it? Well, I would say two things. One, to me, the Panama Papers proved that actually we have the money. It's just not going to the right places and it's very unevenly distributed. That over the past 40 to 50 years, the American economy has done very well, but the American people haven't actually seen those gains. Uh, You know, for most middle-class families, wages have stayed stagnant or have gone down. But in fact, the economy's done really well. So that money is there. It's just not distributed evenly across the U.S. So let's look at social policies that would allow capital to flow more freely uh, around the country is one thing that I'd say. But the second thing I'd say is it is a bold policy, and, and I do think we need more research on what it would look like. And I think the skeptics, you know, that it's too expensive, I would say, look, this country has put people on the moon. We've just landed a space rocket on a drone. We are a land of big bets. And this is a big bet, and it's something worth exploring. What did you think when you heard that Y Combinator is going to be trying this thing in Oakland? I think more research and more understanding of what happens when we give people money is a very good thing. I think the cities that are looking into experiments like Luzanne and Switzerland or Utrecht or the Canadian cities, I think that's all really positive. And I think uh, Y Combinator's announcement um, – drew a lot of attention to the idea, uh, as did Give Directly, which announced shortly thereafter it was doing a $30 million study on the universal basic income in Kenya. And so I think the combination of a study on U.S. soil uh, and in Oakland, which is a city where I live, uh, that is you know in the Bay Area and lots of tech influence, but does not share equally in sort of the, the bounty of the tech industry, is a really... Uh, interesting choice. And I think a really good choice. I think that we'll learn a lot from these experiments that different groups are taking on. And obviously you are not a government organization either, the Universal Income Project. But when I wrote the first story about this earlier this week, some people on Twitter were feeling a little uneasy about the fact that, you know, like a VC startup is going to start experimenting with people's wages um, in 
you know, its backyard. Does that concern you at all? Or does it concern you that, you know, Silicon Valley is kind of leading the charge here? Or do you think that they have like a responsibility to do so because they're kind of leading a lot of this automation we've been talking about? I don't think Silicon Valley is leading the charge here. There have been cities across the world who have launched experiments. The public sector has led the charge, and I think Silicon Valley is responding in kind. Look, it makes perfect sense to me that people who spend all day long building businesses and thinking about the outer limits of things like artificial intelligence uh, and automation and technology, it makes perfect sense to me that in those in-between hours, they wonder what is going to happen to the labor market when, you know, my business idea sort of becomes the next big thing. Like, what, how will society organize if thousands of new people are put out of a job based on this product that I built? And so I think it makes perfect sense that there would be excitement around the idea of the universal basic income. But I don't think Silicon Valley is leading the charge on this. We see interest from all across the country around basic income from East Coast to the Midwest. There are folks who flew out from Minnesota, from Oklahoma to the Create-a-thon that was held in the Bay Area. I think that, you know, there are people who are inspired all across the country. If you look at notable people who are coming out in support, it's not just Silicon Valley. It's Nobel-winning economists from around the country and the world. You know, the head of the World Economic Forum. It's former labor leaders who spend very little time in Silicon Valley. So I actually think we're seeing popularity from across the board. Yeah, I'm very excited to see how it goes, especially because it's on American soil. I mean, I know that there's been a lot of experiments around the world, but it is exciting to see something in the U.S. If you could give Y Combinator some advice on this experiment, what would you tell them? Do you think that there's a lot riding on this experiment or or no? I think the Y Combinator experiment is really exciting. I think it's a step forward. I think we need more like that. I hope we see more think tanks taking this on and academic institutions designing experiments to see, you know, what happens if if we give people money? You know, what happens to their cortisol levels? Does stress go down? You know, what do they spend it on? Do they start businesses? Do they, you know, pursue violin lessons? Are they actually just able to cover basic expenses in a way that they weren't, you know, able to do before? I think all of that is good. I think Advice for Y Combinator would be, you know, get to know the community, um, work through the community. And I think they're off to a good start. Having met with the city and sort of starting to spend more time in Oakland, I think that is a, a positive first step. So is basic income just hype or is there more to it? Should Y Combinator be screwing around with people's incomes? What happens if people get used to that income and then lose it? I called up an old friend to discuss. Who are you? I am Brian Merchant. If you don't remember him from previous podcasts, Brian Merchant was a senior editor at Motherboard for a long time. Uh, He still runs our Terraform science fiction vertical, and he recently left a full-time position here to work on an upcoming book about the iPhone. Let's talk about basic income. Um, yeah. You Before you went on your book writing spree, you were uh, doing a lot of stuff on automation and basic income. Um, and we've talked a little bit about what basic income is already, but who is this popular with? Who is it popular with? Well, increasingly, it's popular with anybody that hears about it. It's popular with especially right now, sort of a subset of the tech crowd. Interestingly, I think it's become sort of an issue, a cause celeb from some Google folks and some Silicon Valley people as one potentially fairly elegant way to combat 
automation, right? Like just the idea is you just give everybody money, no matter what, no questions asked. Everybody gets a an annual, usually maybe monthly allotment of cash, just the bare minimum to get by, to pay rent, to eat food, and to, you know, cover the cost of living. And anything on top of that, you have to work to earn. So it kind of appeals to the sort of libertarian-leaning but solutions-oriented tech crowd right now, which is, I think, why we're talking about this, because the infamous incubator, tech incubator, Y Combinator is funding a a, a project starting about now, right? Yeah, they're going to start it later this summer. So I published this story earlier this week saying that Y Combinator is going to take about 100 people in Oakland and give them between $1,000 and $2,000 every month and see how it goes. I published this story and immediately there was some like Twitter backlash. Like Paul Ford tweeted at me. Paul Ford is like a semi-famous like coder slash journalist slash very smart man. And he was like, you know, this gives me the willies anytime I hear about basic income. Um, Some other people were like, why does this seem so sketchy to me? Um, Why do you think this rubs is rubbing some people the wrong way? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I... I think the people who are supporting it are viewing it as like this, this very altruistic, this, this sort of like better version of us, of a safety net, uh, that we already have, like, uh, instead of welfare, uh, or, you know, I, maybe that's what's giving him the willies is that drawn out to the logical conclusion, you know, a lot of conservatives support the basic income for this very reason, because theoretically you could then do away with a lot of these social programs and just give people money and let the market sort out uh, all these, all these things. So there's some criticism that, you know, the, the basic income would kind of instate some sort of like a fiefdom, I guess, where it like kind of like sort of cements the the inequality gap where like the you know the poor can cover their basic needs and you know the rich continue to prosper i'm not exact i didn't see this exchange so i'm actually curious to see like what what he said he just doesn't feel right i mean there's i guess there's some kind of like this especially in san francisco where i saw this story just come out this week where like the genie coefficient which measures inequality was applied to San Francisco and it was found that San Francisco is now more unequal than most countries, including many, many, many like third world, that's but uh, developing sort of like ruled by despots and authoritarian regimes where it's like came in just underneath Guatemala in terms of this terrible gulf uh, of income. So maybe there's this sense that, you know, rich techie people kind of giving a small amount of money to poor people in Oakland has maybe some bad, bad optics and kind of maybe has like some colonialist overtones. Maybe, is that what he was talking about maybe? So his tweet was, quote, why does universal basic income give me the willies so bad, like the worst ever willies? And then a few people responded and he was like, I think it's prescriptive about the sort of society we should build and people pushing and people pushing it have not prioritized humans prior, which I think that's a decent uh, point. You know, it's like all these Silicon Valley companies have basically prioritized efficiency and 
I guess, efficiency over over humans. And, you know, we, we're kind of automating people out of these jobs like truck drivers and taxi drivers and increasingly journalists and a little bit more like white collar type things, all in the name of progress. And the solution to it is basically like, here's some money, um, right. you know, fend- like here's enough to to eat and perhaps like pay rent, but the rest you're sort of, uh, you know, on your own with. And the end goal here may be, you know, there's there's jobs for robots, there's no jobs for humans. So how are people going to make any more money um, if there are no jobs? Um, that's obviously kind of like a little, looking a little bit far into the future, but it's basically like we will get rich off of, uh, you know, we'll get rich off of our robots and you can kind of sit here at the bottom and subsist, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> right. Well, I do. I think that is. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, I, I, as, an, as an often <laughs> times critic of Silicon Valley myself, like I actually think that's kind of a cynical view of what the basic income is trying to achieve. Because we have to remember that this Silicon Valley is actually kind of late to this. Uh, Canada famously tried out the most robust yet pilot program in in, um, a city called uh, Dauphin. Um, Probably pronouncing that wrong, but... Uh, and that was years and years ago. And now Finland is considering uh, a, a basic income. And it's been... Uh, a referendum in Switzerland for for years now. I, aren't they voting on Sunday? Even I think it's like by the time this airs, it might have already been. So like the things that they found in the in the Canadian uh, pilot program when they when they re- reviewed the results, it wasn't even a big basic income. Um, I don't think, and they found that you know some nice things happened, like teenagers stayed in school longer and completed their uh, educations and mothers spent more time with their children instead of going back to work. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of economic conditions were barely affected. Like there wasn't any, people didn't just stop working because they had free money. Uh, It's just some, some nice social benefits happened. And I, and I think that like, this fear that you know that we're just going to you know give give people money and then just let the robots take over is also a little cynical because yeah i mean automation is real like people are getting put out of jobs there are there is a smaller pool of jobs available ostensibly unless we can keep up the service sector indefinitely which seems kind of crazy to me uh then yeah, there has to be some sort of palliative or at least some sort of social uh, safety net. And I think that basic income, maybe it's not the right one, but figuring you know out whether or not it could work in America is not necessarily a, an ignoble cause. 
I don't know. That's just me. As you mentioned, there have been a few different experiments with this. Um, back in the 70s, the U.S. experimented with something called negative income tax in which uh, you know, people weren't making that much money. We're actually getting back more than they, like they, they owed the U.S. government owed them money essentially. And an idea, by the way, which was like was championed by like the arch conservative uh, Milton Friedman, right? Like he was totally into that idea. You know, conservatives like this idea. Liberals like this idea. Libertarians really like this idea. Um, and the reason, you know, people on the right seem to like this idea is you can kind of simplify the safety net and also, you know, get rid of a lot of these other programs like welfare and food stamps, maybe. I'm curious, uh, you know, you give people a small amount of money and get rid of all of the other safety nets. What happens if they blow their money on something that they shouldn't? Or, you know, you, you have like an alcoholic or a gambling addict or, or something like this. I mean, and you've gotten rid of all of the other safety nets, I feel like that may be problematic in terms of, okay, you've now spent your basic income, you don't have a job, like, fuck you, you can die. For the record, I think that, I mean, I'm probably like skewing left politically, but I I, I think that this should just be on top of everything. You know, like, it's obviously our social safety net as it is, which, because of the election, and because of, Hillary Clinton's sort of uh, role in the welfare reform in the '90s. Uh, we're talking about it again, which is interesting. Um, but it's just a—it's a patchwork now. We have Medicaid. We have a pretty weak, uh, you know, unemployment uh, benefits program federally, at least. Uh, we have this like—it's just like it's in tatters, really. Our our social safety net. So. We like this is appealing, I think, to some people because it's like pretty clear that in at any time in the near future, Congress is not going to fix any. I mean, we've just seen you know six years uh, of gridlock of Congress getting less done than it almost ever has. So the prospect that this like intransigent Congress is just going to like start caring about fixing up a social safety net in the way that it should be, you know, like really, you know, it's fought Obamacare, which is just really just like a pretty benign effort to get uh, uh, millions of people health insurance. They fought it tooth and nail, even though it's this very market driven, very friendly, very insurance industry friendly, uh, program and we just haven't been able to get anything done so i think a lot of people are saying okay here's this like fledgling idea like some people some conservative think tanks have written nice things about it milton friedman liked it like people on the left like that it could help people get out of poverty maybe this thing can work and it's it kind of it has like that sort of uh like aura of newness about it that I, I don't know but people it just gets people excited which i think is a good thing you know getting people excited about a, a policy a social policy right now when there's like so much uh cynicism about government is is only a good thing right right and that's all what the y commentator folks told me i mean they were like this is one of the very few ideas that has supporter like that has supporters on both sides of the aisle um, I'm curious, 
like do, do you think it's a problem that we have say a capitalist like like we have Y Combinator doing this research as opposed to the federal government or as opposed to a um as opposed to like a university or a type of academic setting. I mean, they say they're, they're going to get academics involved, but we're not sure what that looks like yet. They say that uh, the Oakland government is going to be involved in some way, but I've called them up and, uh, you know, the Oakland government said, we're not exactly sure what you're talking about. So, I mean, I, I, may, I may have reached the wrong people, but I mean, they're looking into it and they have not gotten back to me yet. They're not exactly sure like what they're talking about. So, I mean, is it, is it weird that a you know, startup incubator is going into a city and saying, we're going to experiment on your people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this particular program that Y Combinator is doing does strike me as a little bit weird. Um, The reason I was taken aback earlier at Paul Ford's comment was that he seemed to be talking about the general idea of basic income, which definitely has, you know, has its issues. Um, But like this particular program does strike me as like a little bit weird. Like they're just kind of randomly giving some people money and other people more money. And from the outset, it's not like really adhering to any academic standards. So like unless they really do make a really robust effort to, you know, make sure that it adheres to the scientific method and really makes sure that, you know, they can get some results that can be replicated. I don't know how much value this thing is going to have other than just kind of save the curiosity of some, of some, some tech Titan folks. Uh, That said, like, I don't know if, I still don't know if it's all bad. It's got people talking about it at least. And I, I mean, I think what what eventually is going to happen if this goes anywhere that it's it's going to break along partisan lines like anything else, like the handful of niche conservative, uh, you know, think tanks that think this is a cool policy idea will and inevitably be drowned out by like the price tag of funding anything like this in any kind of pilot program. I think the reason that it's never ever seen a, a policy, uh, an actual pilot program here, is just that it would be so expensive. And I don't know what institution would would fund, you know, uh, even giving a whole town free money. It just might. I don't know. The, the politics might be difficult in the in the U.S. where where such things, government spending of any sort, you know, much less just to give it away for free to people, uh, it comes under the under the microscope in a pretty harsh way sometimes. Right, right. You're right, though. This does have a lot of momentum right now. Um, I'm wondering why why you think that is. Um, I know that... Um, I know automation and, and robotics and AI is kind of a big topic right now, and economy and jobs and work always is. But, I mean, we have New York Times ran a story this week, um, Vox ran a story this week. Like we had Brookings just had a big uh, conference about it last week or earlier, I guess last month now. Um, people are talking about this in a way that they weren't a few years ago. And like you mentioned, this is not a new idea, but it surely seems to have like a lot of momentum right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because the little evidence that we do have shows that it does work, or at least it does do some interesting things, some interesting and beneficial things. Uh, and I think, again, in a way that it's just this, it's this new proposal. It's, it's, it's not, 
it's still new to most people. I guarantee you. Well, I can't guarantee you, but if you were to poll, you know, you the, the United States of America as to the population, the general population who has heard of even heard of basic income, I, you, I bet you get some vanishingly low numbers. So the excitement is more, I feel like, generated in in certain corners. Uh, people that have kind of found it. Uh, an interesting idea and, and, and just kind of like started a series of conversations. Switzerland, I think was an early mover on this. And then, yeah, you know, I think the tech sector is aware that of, of the charges against it, that it's, that, that it's thirst for efficiency, that it's in a, that it's automation, uh, that 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 is driving automation and and shedding jobs. There's that famous study that looked at sort of the the jobs created by this generation of tech companies like Amazon and and uh, Google and Facebook versus the last generation, and they're just hundreds of thousands fewer uh, because they're all you know software jobs. They're all uh, you know they're all helping to to con- you know Amazon is sort of uh, you know, making retail a much more trim and efficient uh, operation. You don't need people staffing a store. Uh, so I don't know if Jeff Bezos cares particularly, but there's this general sense that like, well, we should do something about this. And since they have a, mic- a megaphone right now, I think that they've managed uh, some of the folks in the Silicon Valley adjacent tech scene have kind of managed to get this uh, into some into some uh, influential circles and it's just radiating outwards that's what that's that's my read anyways and then that paired with with Switzerland managing to get it on the, the national ballot which is a bigger deal than this Y Combinator thing um, that that's that's international news so free money who doesn't want to talk about free money who doesn't want free money really unless you're voted right 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 so um i want to talk about i guess maybe not the responsibility of tech companies to explore this idea but uh we have companies like uber and google and facebook and amazon charging ahead with you know ai and robotics and drones and we are losing a lot of jobs very quickly. I mean, if if self-driving cars become a, a thing, you know, we could be looking at, you know, an entire taxi slash rideshare industry out the window. We could be looking at, you know, truck drivers out the window, bus drivers out the window. Um, do you think that? Do you think that progress needs to be stalled, or like until we figure this problem out? Because it, like right now. Um, Maybe not with the drive, maybe not with the drivers so much, but with things like fast food workers, we can get rid of many of those, no problem. But do we have a responsibility to employ humans, you know, as long as we don't have this problem figured out? Like, there, I mean, there are a lot of regulations going on right now, and like talk of, you know, Uber should be required to do this or should be required to do that, and clearly they're just sort of like racing to the bottom toward our like inevitable robo taxi future should we have like (laughs) regulations like slow that progress down until we can figure out how are we going to keep people from plunging into poverty well i mean i mean ideally right like i don't i don't know in practice what that would look like 
I, you can't legislate, uh, you know, job job stability. You can't just say like you can't fire this many people. You can't disrupt this industry in this way. Uh, I mean, you can say use. you can't have self driving cars like that. Maybe we shouldn't do that, but you know, theoretically, the government could say robots cannot drive cars. Yeah, theoretically, but I'm the only way that I think that that would ever happen is if for for safety issues, if people were afraid of them, as polls still show that they are. Um, but if history is any guide, then efficiency increasing uh, technologies have a have a tendency of of winning out. You know, back to the very early loom uh you know the automated loom that the looms that the luddites were protesting against i mean that was basically what their argument was they were that that was a labor movement that was saying listen you need to figure out how to keep our job you know if these looms are going to destroy jobs they're going to uh put us all out of work so you know their their activism was uh was aimed at doing basically what you're talking about. And, you know, of course, they, they were relatively successful in a, in a way, but they, they ultimately lost out and then turned into a punchline. Uh, but, which is to say that, like, this, I don't, I don't think trying to stop the technology is necessarily the best way to do this right now. I think that there is sort of a tendency towards, like, some kind of pastoralism that's a weird sort of conservative tint to a certain uh, kind of liberalism these days that's, you know, like, let's stop the robots, let's stop the cyborgs, let's stop them from taking our jobs by, I don't know, halting them, destroying them. When really, I think what the, what and why this uh, basic income aligns so neatly or it appears to with the automation issue is that there's a pretty good argument that you know, we are entering into something that before too long could resemble like a post scarcity society. Like we have, you know, our, we have machines that can farm. I don't know if we want them to, but we, we can, we can do most things with a relatively few number of jobs. And we have uh, an abundance of, of stuff right now. There was like that really interesting movement called the fully automated luxury communism. And they're a far leftist group who argued that we can 3D print, we're just steps away from 3D printing all the shit that we need. So let's just try to make sure that we can like secure again the the means of production and you know nobody will have to work. We'll just all get luxury shit. Right. And I guess there's an argument like why why are people wasting their time driving around in trucks when robots could do it for us? I mean the the promise of the future has always been you know, more leisure time. Um, and I guess sort of like historically that has played out, but not over the last, you know, century or so. No, I think you're totally right. Like I, I it's never, I mean, that's always been the goal. Like, you know, Bertrand Russell in the, at the turn of the century, super famous philosopher, uh, wrote a, a, a great tract about how we're approaching you know, the, the promise of leisure time. That was 100 years ago, and it, it does. It never does seem to manifest. But I think at, at this point, that's for uh, capitalistic and political reasons more than reasons of ability. 
we, I mean, especially here in the richest country on the planet, we totally have the mechanisms technologically and socially necessary to do a much better job of distributing resources and income. And we can get, we could, if we wanted to, you know, set up a, a system that, that did make sure that there weren't 42 million people on food stamps or whatever. And, and I mean, we, we were, the evidence is we're throwing out so much food. We're so, we're throwing so much garbage, so much e-waste, all this stuff could be better contained if our system wasn't so skewed to shepherd all the junk to the top. I don't know if the basic income is a way to prevent that trajectory or to reroute it necessarily, but it, uh, it, it looks like it to some people. And that's, I think, why they're pursuing it. Earlier this year, you wrote, uh, maybe it was last year, I don't know at this point, but you wrote a story called The Only State in the United States That Gets Free Money. Can you tell us about that story and experiment? Yeah, it's kind of considered like a basic income light where uh, everybody in the state of Alaska, every single resident, every man, woman, and child that lives in Alaska gets an annual payment of money. Just uh, And it's pegged to the state's oil revenue, which is the dominant uh, provider of the, of the Alaskan economy. So uh, years and years ago, it, the, the state enacted this policy. It's called the Permanent Fund uh, Dividend. And it uh, has been in place for, for, for decades now. And it's basically just a few thousand dollars every year that is given no questions asked to every Alaskan. Um, and it's uh, extremely popular, as you might imagine. Um, it's not enough to live on. Like if this is all that you got, you know, if you just were said, okay, well, this is my basic income, then you would starve probably and you would be uh, left to uh, scavenge in the Alaskan wilderness and it would probably be an unpleasant time. But basic income, people are interested in it because it sort of gives us at least an idea of the mechanics of what what uh, this, what such a policy would look like, you know, how it pulls, how it impacts uh, where people spend their time and their money. Um, and once again, it's generally considered to be a pretty good thing in the state. I mean, it's again, it's hugely popular, but it's also useful for uh, people who are just regular people to, you know, to help pay bills, help to, a lot of it goes to consumer spending so they can, uh, there's a, always a boost New park is, yeah, just rolling out the Alaskan stereotypes. Yeah, they can finally get those grizzly bears taxidermy that they roll out on their cabins and shotguns and whatever else. I, I don't know. How much money does this usually end up being? Do you remember? I know it depends based on how much, uh, you know, oil revenue the state gets, but... Yeah, it's about $2,000 a year. It's not bad. No, it's not bad. It's, uh, you know, if you're super thrifty, I mean, rent's cheaper in Alaska, in Anchorage, if you, you know, you can make it go a long way. I mean, it is, it's nothing to sneeze at. And it's for every, again, it's for every person. If you have a, you know, a, a three person household, that's $6,000. And that can, uh, you know, make, it makes a big difference. It can, you know, it, it, it can cover repairs on the, on the house. It can, you know, 
cover you know whatever copays for for doctor visits. It can cover a lot. It can cover a lot of stuff. It can make a difference. It's a buffer uh, that you can lean on. You know that you're gonna you're gonna have this infusion of cash available, and you can kind of program it into your daily life and assume that there is this uh, this this sort of bumper that you can fall back on, you know, if you have a bad year for whatever reason. So it's 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 a nice thing. Um, and it's still, you know, a little, uh, little, uh, little radical for, in terms of, in terms of policy for the rest of the U S. Do you think that this is going to happen eventually? I don't know. I think that we should, I think we should give it more legitimate study, um, which is exactly what Switzerland and Finland are, are trying to do, um, as well as some other places making, making murmurs of it. I mean, it would be great if the U.S. were to fund a, a legitimate pilot study, you know, have it, uh, have social scientists sort of observe the effects closely. Um, I think that would be great to, to learn more about, about how it influences the fabric of, of daily life um, and, and the economy at large, because I think it could be one part of a solution to automation. It's not a silver bullet. Um, and people are right to be skeptical about it, but we should definitely note there still hasn't been a really truly robust, uh, a real you know stab at, at pulling this off. So like yeah, if if a country with it already has a fantastic social uh, safety net like Finland, or even one that's a little more neutral like Switzerland wants to give it a go, I think that would be just, just give everyone free money for a year. That could be really valuable to to learn about, you know the merits of the idea. So I think that's where we're at. I don't think it's has any air of inevitability about it. Again, it's going to get tainted by politics inevitably whenever it enters any serious forum. So it's we're a long ways from seeing this thing seriously implemented in any fashion here in the United States at least. So it's a fun it's a fun concept. It's a fun uh and very compelling policy idea, and it's relatively new in our political arena. So I think, yeah, we should uh, we should take it seriously, and we should continue to study it. Yeah, I haven't really decided how I feel about the Y Combinator uh, study, but I'm glad that someone is studying it. So um, I think that maybe you know we need more study into it, and I'm certainly interested to see what Finland and Switzerland do. But uh, it's good that someone is getting the ball rolling, I suppose. Yeah, get academics, Y Combinator. If you're listening to this, please get it. Get make sure that this thing can can uh, be submitted to peer review and and make sure that it can, you know, stand up to scrutiny. Uh, I think it's uh, your intent is I'm, I want to say is noble. So make sure you try to do it right. Yeah, one thing they noted was uh, that the experiments in the 70s, the kind of uh, negative income tax uh, studies, weren't done very well, and that sort of derailed the whole movement. And I think they at least have the sense that if they screw this up, it could be very bad. Yeah. It's either that or it's too inconsequential, just a handful of... Because, I mean, to really understand how this works, you have to give it to everybody in a community, I think. You have to see you know, how it, I mean, it, it, it's nice to give it to a few people. What if they get, they get free money, but I think you're going to see the results are distorted if one person in a community is getting free money and nobody else is. So I, I, I don't, I think there is a difference in terms of like the social cohesion that, 
a true basic income would would strive for. Uh, so I don't, again, I don't really know. I, I, I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm not an academic, so I don't know what the, the merits of random, you know, money allotments would be. So I, again, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, the conversation is good. It's in right. the U.S. Let's, uh, I, I hope to see something a little more substantive come soon. All right, that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jason Kebler. Thanks so much to Brian Merchant for joining us. And thanks to our editor, Mark Liam Bruni. Uh, we should be back maybe later this week or next week. I'm not sure yet. Uh, we've got to figure out what our schedule is, but uh, keep your eyes on this space. And we'll be back with a new episode as soon as we can. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.